the fake news the enemy of the people, and they are. It's a serious question. I, I appreciate your passion. I share it. I've addressed this question. I've addressed my personal feelings. And I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. You're listening to Just Ask the Question, adventures in reporting with your host, Brian Karam. Hi, and welcome to Just Ask the Question. I am Brian Karam, and today we're with uh, Reporters Without Borders and Margo Ewan, who represents Reporters Without Borders, and we're here to just ask the question. So I'm just going to ask the question, Margo, because that's what I do. Uh, (laughs) How dangerous is it to be a reporter today? Well, I guess that depends where in the world you're located. Um, We do cover press freedom uh, all over the globe, and unfortunately, it has become dangerous, increasingly dangerous for more and more reporters in places where you wouldn't expect outside of war zones uh, in the past several years. But again, it does matter where exactly you are asking that question. Well, let's start with, um, you bring up two interesting points with your answer. One is, let's start with the United States. How much more dangerous is it for reporters in this country these days than it has been? Well, when we think about danger here in the United States, we probably don't think about assassination and targeted killings, typically not what we would think about here. What we do see and what we've seen increasing over the past few years is the number of journalists who are arrested doing their job. So they do face risk to impede their job reporting, usually while they're covering protests. But we're also seeing some acts of violence, physical aggression, whether it comes from arresting police officers or from uh, anti-racist protesters or fascist protesters, kind of comes from either side. The press that's there to document does experience some kinds of um physical threat to their reporting. We also have threats increasingly online or phoned-in threats against the life of reporters. That we're seeing an uptick in. But unfortunately, this year in the United States, as we all know, um, a major tragedy occurred at the Capitol Gazette in Annapolis, Maryland, uh, when four reporters and and one uh, marketing employee were gunned down by a a man who came in and uh, attacked them with a shotgun And it was uh, allegedly in relation to reporting that they had done on him in the past. And that's really kind of unprecedented in the United States. And and in that respect, we might say that reporters in the U.S. are facing greater danger now than they have in the past. And we certainly see the data representations um, in our World Press Freedom Index. We rank 180 countries around the world based on their level of press freedom. And we had already downgraded the U.S. to 45th place uh, in the index we published this year. Yes. And what's the highest the U.S. has been? That would have to go back quite a while for us to be significantly higher. We've been in the 40s for the past three years that I've been with Reporters Without Borders. Um, We fell down two points between 2016 and 2017. And between, I'm sorry, between 2017 and 2018, between 2016 and 2017, we fell another two points. So we've kind of been on this steady downward decline that really wasn't doing so, we weren't doing so hot under Obama, but President Trump's kind of pushed us over the edge on that. And our data is based on only the first year of his presidency. So it doesn't really include any of the events that taken place in 2018 yet. So before we talk about... Um Obama and, and and Donald Trump, and of course, even before I get to the part about uh, Annapolis, and I knew most of those people, um, 
why? That the other question that came to my mind is you said it's become increasingly more dangerous. So let's logically take the step and it has become dangerous, increasingly more dangerous. Why? I think it's about power. And those who are in power typically are the targets of reporting that seeks to speak truth to that power and uncover facts, uh, maybe facts that uh, ruling authorities don't want readers to see. And when um, a leader, typically, historically, it's been authoritarian leaders, want to change the narrative and control the dialogue about their position in power, then they seek to silence the press, whether that's... Give me an example of that. You can take a look at what's happening in Turkey, you know, democratically elected leader, but now um, almost every independent news outlet's been closed down. They're are reports of uh, approximately 100 or so journalists who are in jail facing charges of terrorism just simply for reporting uh, negatively on uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. So that's one example um, in the extreme. But unfortunately, we're seeing more and more democratic countries uh, take aim at reporters through different laws that might impact their ability to report the news Um, Maybe there are economic um, hardships that can be imposed on media outlets. If you look at what happened in uh, in 2017 last year, a Maltese investigative reporter was murdered execution style. And she was really one of the only reporters who was willing to investigate corruption in Malta um, involving, you know, heads of state. And there's still such pushback from that government in investigating seriously and prosecuting those responsible for her murder because of how much she uncovered on that government. So when you say that, when we're talking about pressure against reporter, I mean, against reporters, when you talk about the United States, like you said, we, we don't face that here or haven't. Um, so isn't it okay? Isn't it par for the course? Isn't it accurate to say when the president comes out and says, hey, we're enemies of the people, we're fake media because we get things wrong? Doesn't he have a leg to stand on to do that? Doesn't he have a right to do that? He might have a right to say what he wants to say if this is the country of free speech, but then that also means that news outlets have the right to publish, uh, and they're doing so following journalistic and ethical standards. And when news outlets make a mistake, they publish a correction or a retraction. They tell their readers, hey, we got this wrong. Um, that is really the nature of what it means to be a journalist and what it means to provide the news. Uh, it's and, okay to get things wrong. I mean, it's not what any journalist aims to do, um, but they acknowledge it when it happens and they level with their readers because they're providing a public service at the end of the day. It isn't about them. It's not about their spotlight. It's about the news that the people need to know to inform the daily making decision processes. But the president says, in fact, that it, that we are making it about us, that we stand up and push back. And it's because we want to be stars and we want to be on TV and we want to uh, we want to get our faces in the news. And it's uh, and we're not being genuine. Well, it's unfortunate that he thinks that way. Um, but, you know, the press in the White House, the press at the State Department are fighting for their access that is constantly being chipped away, as I'm sure you're aware of. Um, no. <laughs> no, I have no idea. <laughs> and I think we're at a sea change moment in the United States where the press has really 
come to understand that they need to be advocates for their own profession if their profession is going to survive and be protected because it just won't stand to say, you know, I'm a reporter, I can't, you know, I can't advocate for this or that. But when it comes to the freedom of the press being whittled away, I think more and more journalists here in the United States realize the role that they have to play, the solidarity that they have to uh, participate in, you know, when, what was it, a month ago, a White House reporter um, was barred access Caitlin to an event, Collins Ka- Caitlin Collins, from CNN. And, you know, you had multiple news outlets from maybe right-leaning, left-leaning sources, all making a statement decrying that denial of access. That's really important. That also happened during Obama with Fox News. When they tried, when Obama tried to ban Fox News, we all kind of got together and said, hey, you know, you can't really do that. Yeah. And that, I think that is an important point that you're making, that it is not just about President Trump's being anti-media freedom. There are plenty of other presidents in the U.S. history, including his predecessor, Barack Obama, who have been notorious for limited press access, limited transparency, prosecuting whistleblowers, etc. And I think it's important to remind people in the public in the White House itself that uh, the press has always spoken out against those types of attacks on media freedom, no matter which administration it came from, because it isn't about politics. It's about the First Amendment. Well, let's and let's talk a little bit about that. You, you We brought it up or you brought it up a little earlier, but um Donald Trump's ability to do what he's done is kind of based on what Barack Obama did prior to him. Let's talk a little bit about that. How how did Barack Obama fail the First Amendment? So, well, I think one of the ways that he changed the narrative um, coming out of the White House was by being, you know, kind of the first social media president and by making sure that his own, you know, photographer was going to share most of the images of of him at the White House. And he was going to be tweeting about his activities. And that, I think, tried to take the message directly to the people versus through the press pool, as was the tradition before him. Uh, And while he probably didn't tweet as much about his policy objectives as the current president. Um, (laughs) That is kind of the beginning of this trend we're now seeing with Trump also trying to control the message and take it directly to the people and bypass the media. But of course, the main difference is that Trump is almost daily, at least weekly, um, criticizing bad coverage uh, blaming specific media outlets or just the fake news media, which is something right. he uses all the time um, when he doesn't like the way a story is being told about him. I mean, just, you know, last week you had this bombshell story of this anonymous op-ed in the New York Times. And what does Trump do? He accuses the New York Times of treason. <laughs> right. Well, uh, before we get on, uh, before we spend, we can spend a lot of time on Trump. And, and I do want to talk about the other stuff that you guys do. But let's clean up a little bit about uh, when we talk about Barack Obama. One of the things that is concerning to reporters is his use of the Espionage Act to to go after whistleblowers Absolutely. more than any other president. That's and true. we reported on that and yet we still get hit with we love, you know, Trump more than we love Barack Obama and the fact is this was of great concern, was it not? Absolutely. Um the number of uh, whistleblowers that were prosecuted under Obama what is has been as of yet unprecedented for any previous administration. Um, And that's really a threat to press freedom because people who serve as sources to journalists are 
speaking out because they feel that they have a duty on behalf of the public's interest. And the kinds of stories that came out of, you know, some of these whistleblower prosecutions are incredibly fundamental to U.S. We have a whistleblower. Yeah, we have a whistleblower that went to jail recently, a reality winner, winner, who actually let us know about the Russian hacking. Yeah, reality winner's case is really uh, concerning for us because, you know, it's the longest uh, prison sentence that's ever been given to, you know, that kind of uh, whistleblower. Whistleblower, And it, it really is like some awful foreshadowing for what could come under the Trump administration and how aggressively they're going to seek to prosecute leaks. Maybe they'll surpass Obama's record. I mean, it, it's really I mean, the nature of the information that she was accused of sharing is so clearly in the public's interest, such as uh, evidence that there was uh, Russian interference uh, or attempted interference in election uh, systems before the, the 2016 presidential election. Um, and it but didn't of, she have it coming? I mean, she took vital national security secrets and let them go. Well, whether or not she deserves some sort of penalty for, you know, taking government information and sharing it with the public, uh, that's, you know, up for debate. But the, the use of the Espionage Act to prosecute somebody who's sharing information for the public good, uh, it doesn't provide the defendant with any kind of public interest defense. It's designed for spies traitorous of the United States government. She wasn't giving information to a foreign entity. She was actually doing the exact opposite. So I think that the... She was letting us know about exactly. a foreign entity. <laughs> and, you know, for people like her, for people like Terry Albury, the other uh, whistleblower to be sentenced under, you know, prosecuted under Trump, and he exposed, you know, r- racial discrimination in the FBI, which is, is really important as well. Um you know, that reminds me of, of Jeffrey Sterling, you know, this major whistleblower that Reporters Without Borders defended, among many other advocacy groups, who was prosecuted under the Obama administration. The African-American. Yes, the first the- African-American to sue the CIA for racial discrimination and who paid for it dearly, was sentenced to three and a half years in prison and claims By he never Eric did Yes. And he, you know, there was never any direct evidence to prove that he was a right. source that linked leaked information to the New York Times uh, reporter James Risen. And the fact that he was just convicted for, you know, being in contact with a reporter, I mean, that's a terrible precedent to set. But, you know, it, it, I think what happened under Obama is a terrible lesson to learn from. And I don't think that this current administration is <laughs> going to stop <laughs> themselves I think they're going to go even more full throttle than Obama did because you've had multiple occasions where Attorney General Jeff Sessions has declined to even promise that he won't go after reporters. Yes, for Jamie publishing. Raskin asked him that in an open uh, uh, congressional hearing. Right, and he's never said, you know, oh, no, I, I, I will not prosecute reporters for publishing classified information, and that would be, you know, the next step in that process, and and. It's just so threatening to to the First Amendment, and it's so threatening to the people's right to know. I mean, that's really the people who are losing out the most here. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, I want to continue that conversation and talk a little bit about your international work and talk a little bit about uh, where we're going in the United States and what you all do to help. This is Just Ask a Question. We're going to ask many more of Margo when we get back, and we want to thank you again, Margo, for joining us, and it's Reporters Without Borders. You can check them online at... 
Uh, www.rsf.org slash en. And if you want to contribute, I'm sure they'd love it. Thank you. Yeah, we would love that. (laughs) We'll be right back. From the American Revolution to the uprising in Libya, people have fought for their rights and freedoms. It is our responsibility to be vigilant and guard the promise of the Founding Fathers to ensure justice and liberty for all. Get involved. You're listening to Just Ask the Question, adventures in reporting with your host, Brian Karam. Thanks, and we're back. It's Just Ask the Question. And before we go any further, Margo, I always like to share. So I'm going to share my own moment with you that was a learning experience as a reporter for me. And it was covering a, a mining disaster in eastern Kentucky. And it was in the 80s. And as um, we rolled up on the scene with our cameras and got out and started shooting, uh, a rather angry gentleman from the coal mining region of Kentucky came out and threatened us with a shotgun and my photographer said uh, hey we're on public we were we were in the middle of a public street and we should be able to shoot wherever we want and uh, he says uh, my 30 6 says otherwise and at that point in time I don't think it was 30 I think it was just a pump shotgun and at that point 12 gauge is if I remember correctly and at that point in time I turned around to my photographer and I said listen we absolutely have a First Amendment right to do what we're doing, but there really is no reason why we can't accommodate this gentleman and walk across the street away from him. And at some point in time, when and he was reasonable about it, as he actually, with a gun in his hand, he, he was actually reasonable. He said the reason why is he just didn't want his house being seen. And it didn't help us or didn't hurt us. We absolutely had the right to be there, but it... At some point in time, I learned very early that sometimes it's uh, what we see as uh, someone trying to impinge upon our rights is their fear that we're going to do something harmful to them. Yes. And so the communication has to be on both sides. Yes, I agree with that. And I think that that's also at the heart of a lot of the confrontation between anti-fascist protesters and reporters trying to cover those major protests. Like we saw the Unite the Right rally second year in D.C. that a lot of the violent incidents against reporters in D.C. were actually from anti-fascist protesters. And I think it comes from a place of them wanting to control how they're portrayed in the media. And the reporter has, has to be able to safely communicate to them, you know, actually this is what my job is. I'm here to document. I'm not here to serve as anyone's PR. Exactly. Um, If you do reporting, it's always been my opinion, if you're going to do reporting, you're going to anger someone. Otherwise, it is PR. Exactly. And you can't avoid that. You can be courteous. You can be gracious. um, And and you should, above all, be safe. I mean, that's really the bottom line. Um, And reporters need to know what what they're facing before they go into an environment like that. That's true. And that goes back to having a little bit of street sense too and some experience i mean the anti-fascist protesters that i ran into in charlottesville for example were interesting to me because um they were preaching revolution i said well well, what happens after revolution and they said revolution and i go so 
so you're chaos? I mean, it, it, do you have a solution afterwards? And they said, well, something represented. I said, you've got something represented. Do you ever vote? Mm-hmm. Well, it doesn't do any good. And I said, well, have you ever run for office? No, it doesn't do any good. Well, you're going to advocate revolution, which means you're going to get up off your butt, pick up a gun and go against the government, but you won't pull a lever to vote. I, I think there's a disconnect sometimes, and I don't know if that's our fault, but you know, that's the other question I always ask everyone. Are you registered and do you vote? Yes, I'm registered and I vote, although I live in D.C., which means, you know, I don't have a representative, which is is very, very sad to me. Um, I grew up in California and I lived in Texas for a time and I kind of wish I still could vote in those places where I feel like my vote might have more of an impact. or I might have a congressman or congresswoman I could reach out to on important issues. Instead like, for of, example, press freedom. <laughs> and that's a good one to reach out on. <laughs> it is. It's very important. If you don't have a free press to inform you about what this person is running for office in your district is saying, fact-checking what they're saying, looking into their past, how are you going to make an informed vote? Well, that's a good question. And the answer is you won't be able to. Exactly. And so when we talk about... This country, uh, a little bit, and the the direction it's going. Do you have hope, fear, trepidation? What do you see in the future? Well, I feel afraid for those people who work in newsrooms today. I feel like they're more at risk than they were before. You know, uh, the FBI just arrested somebody who made threats on the Boston Globe after they ran this joint editorial project uh, saying the press is not the enemy of the people. And that person who made those threats used the term enemy of the people, which is proof that whatever is coming out of the White House is trickling down to a a certain type of a certain number of people in the population who are willing to actually go out and hurt reporters. And that's what's scary. But I'm encouraged by the media's ability to come together and support each other, no matter what differences in types of coverage that they may have. That's really key. But also in young voters today, the youth, the future generation, I feel like they're pretty mobilized in wanting to make change. And I hope that that can be married with this desire to protect an institution like the fourth estate, the free press. There has to be some education in it because if you're brought up believing in an echo chamber, We're, you know, enemy of the people, fake media, and everything we do is geared against, you know, we're just trying to squelch a voice, Mm -hmm. then you're going to grow up believing that. And the thing that has, um, look, I often say it's not the White House reporter going to the White House that has to worry when I'm in the White House, because I pass through a lot of security. And if you're going to try and take on a reporter and shoot up the White House, you're going to have a lot greater problems than me. You're going to, you're going to end up, you know, looking like Swiss cheese in a pretty quick fashion. Mm-hmm. But it's, I always say it's the young reporter uh, out covering a county fair in Montana, and there's going to be some nut who's going to want to prove himself and he's going to off a reporter. Or it might be somebody running for office who just body slams you because you're asking a question well, yeah. and then gets elected the next, next day. day. Yes. But I think, yeah, I mean, it's the local journalists who have the most at stake, but they also have the most, I guess, the highest percentage of trust from their yeah. viewership. Well, that's and Annapolis. that's another, but that's another type of weird paradox in the United States, because I think a lot of people who kind of respout this 
rhetoric coming from the White House of press or fake, fake news, enemy of the people. Some of those people are, a lot of those people I still think watch their local news and don't yes. make the connection that, and don't, you know, and, don't get and I, it. so I, in a way that's encouraging because if you can find a way to talk to them about the positive things that press coverage gives them in a local environment, then maybe they'll see things that way and, and start to defend that a little bit more. Well, I went to a rally recently in Charleston, West Virginia, and for the first time in my life, I saw reporters who had to have security guards with them so they were not roughed up by those supporting the president. Mm -hmm. And that I would never have thought I would see in my life. And that reminded me of covering rallies in Mexico. Right. It reminded me of covering uh, something in France that I covered once. And uh, Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. And I never thought that we would be lumped in with, I mean, I I was always surprised that we weren't, when you have your your list of, of, you know, countries and rank them, that we wouldn't be at at number one because we have the First Amendment, which supports a free press. And yet there are so many ways around it in this country to the point where you are able to divide us and conquer mm-hmm. us with names like mainstream media, uh, fake news, enemy of the people. And then that brings me to ultimately to when we talk about, uh, as we did earlier about Annapolis, there are four people. And look, the only one responsible in my mind for that shooting in Annapolis was the guy with a shotgun. He picked up the shotgun. Definitely. He did it. He did it. But if you're in an environment that gives people like that cover, and a reason to justify doing what they do, I think that sends a terrible message and it hurts. And those four people that I knew in Annapolis, and one of them I had seen, Wendy, um, who was the one who picked up a trash can, oh, by yeah, the way. Oh, yeah, she's such a hero. And went after him. I mean, she was the woman that would walk into a meeting and bake everybody brownies. And then, uh, you know, if you got nasty with her, she'd burn you to the ground, too. She's a sweetheart. But yeah. <laughs> the idea that... At, at the end of the day, that um, anyone like that could be considered, you know, they're part of the community. We're not, it, it's not that we're enemy of the people. We are the people. We're the people in our communities, right? right? And uh, that's definitely something that needs to be, I think it needs to be highlighted more. Um, and I think reporters, uh, you know, have to continue to get the support they need, the financial support they need to cover their local communities efficiently. I mean, I think it's becoming more and more difficult for local press to cover their state legislature um, and to cover important things like, you know, all the all the different federal judges that have been appointed. You know, forget about Kavanaugh, the Supreme Court. I mean, there's all these other things going on where you can see a lack of coverage because of a lack of resources and a lot of people focusing on national news coverage. But if you strengthen local news coverage and you strengthen the relationship with the community, and I think also... How do you do that? I think when a reporter comes to interview you and wants to tell your story and wants to talk to you, you know, Mr. Joe Schmo in the community... I I know Joe. (laughs) He's a good guy. I feel like that is one way to strengthen relationships. But I think also when you see reporters being, uh, like I mentioned this a couple of times before, but... When you see solidarity among reporters, you know, when Greg John Forte, this congressman in um, Montana, body slammed his Guardian reporter, he did it in front of three Fox News reporters. The fact that that, you know, there was solidarity in that moment and in what actually happened 
against attempts from uh, the congressman's people to lie about what what occurred. I think that's important, and that needs to continue to happen. There need we need to speaking all come together, truth speaking to truth to power, and being, uh, you know, taking a stand with your fellow newspaper woman or man. Like you, right. you need to you need to do that. And well, the the idea has always been, and you know, I don't disagree with it. Is that as you said earlier, it's not about us. We're not the story. We're there to cover the story. Right. But my argument has been, and tell me if I'm off, and, and please correct me, but this administration has changed the rules and has made us part of the story. So how do you react to a bully? And I'm not advocating going up and beating them up, but when when appropriate, I think you need to stand up and, and be counted. Definitely. And I think, you know, different... That's my preach for the day, and now I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> different ways for the press to be involved is, for example, you know, asking different questions about other reporters who might be in a difficult spot, whether it's in the United States or in other countries in the world, at any opportunity that they get to engage with the government and get them on record. So, for example, um, you know, Mr. President, what is the United States planning on doing to secure the release of these two Reuters reporters in Myanmar who have uncovered genocide as the UN calls it, and who've been sentenced to jail when they've done nothing wrong for seven seven years. years. Let's talk a little bit about that. That's around the world. We've spent a good deal of time talking about the United States, but it's not. um, And we're just the uh, out of 118. I guess we're right in the middle. So those at the bottom would be, I'm sure, China, Saudi Arabia. I'm looking at don't forget North Korea, North Korea. (laughs) They're at the bottom. They're at the bottom. Uh, the ones that I've reported in and from would be uh, Iraq, Syria, Saudi Arabia, and Iran. I've been to those countries, mm. and I know well what the problems are there. Right. China, I don't even I don't know if they'd let me in. They definitely wouldn't let me out. <laughs> but you go to North Korea, yeah. So tell me where those. What are we seeing in the Libyas, the Sudans, the Chinas? Those that are. And if anyone wants to see it, you can go to www rsf.org and take a look at Reporters Without Borders and the map that they have there. Right, our World Press Freedom Index. So, you know, for the longest time, Eritrea was actually uh, number 180, the worst on the index, uh, and North Korea was 179. So they've inverted for the past couple of years. But um, obviously, North Korea is an information black hole about what we know, what we don't know about what's going on there. Um, But places like China, for example, incredibly repressive, great firewall. And now you're seeing um, more and more uh, journalists and bloggers being uh, disappeared by the government, then later turning up with a forced confession video. Um, Some bloggers or writers, freethinkers that RSF has defended in the past um, several years have died because they've not received proper health treatment while they were in prison. So I'm talking about Nobel Peace Prize laureate um, Lu Chaobo, who died last year uh, from cancer and was just not allowed to get the proper treatment. Uh, That's really unacceptable. And unfortunately, it's it's something that China wants to export to neighboring countries, their authoritarian model of controlling all news, all information. And how do they do that? Well, you know, they whether they enter in trade agreements with other... No, no. How do they, how do they suppress it in their country? Without, how they suppress it yeah. in their country? Well, they, of course, you know, they have the great firewall that I mentioned. Uh, so many websites are not accessible. They don't have their own Facebook 
you know, they don't have the same types of tools. And now, you know, we've heard these news reports about Google wanting to have a presence in China and China having kind of a list of demands of what they want Google to do. And the human rights community, including RSF, is very concerned about Google what are they? setting, uh, well, you know, it has to do with taking down content and engaging in censorship, you know, in accordance with what the regime wants to accomplish. And that is really dangerous. But what you, you're also seeing, it doesn't get talked about as much, but in Vietnam, you also have Facebook and Google, uh, you know, being asked to comply with a new cybersecurity law that was passed last year, which would require them both to have in-country staff and personnel and, and offices, and for them to take down offensive content within a 24-hour time period. And that's just, you know, absurd. Well, uh, besides those passive ways of going after, there's, all, there's always the tried and true beating the hell out of a journalist. Doesn't yes, that occur? And unfortunately, that occurs as well. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, these forced confession videos, we've seen techniques of torture used. Just last week in, in uh, Russia, right? They were yes. beating people outside of a demonstration. Yes. And unfortunately... You know, it, it doesn't go just to physical beatings. There have been murders of journalists uh, in Russia. Russia yeah. And, but as I mentioned earlier, in Malta and attempted assassinations in Montenegro, you had another journalist murdered in Slovakia. That's kind of unusual for that part of the world, either an EU accession country or an EU country. Um, journalists getting murdered because they're uncovering corruption. Um but you also have, you know, places like Syria, which remain the deadliest country in the world for journalists. Um, but then you have a country like Mexico creeping up. For the last year, it was the deadliest country in the Western Hemisphere um, for journalists. And, and that's just, you know, it's not a country at war. Right. And, and so over the years, it seems like, is it because of reporting has become more universal and we have social media that we're more aware of these situations or has it actually ramped up? Is it more dangerous now to be a reporter? I think it becomes more and more dangerous as people seek to hold on to their power and they try to target and silence those who could threaten their power. And unfortunately, that trend is moving on from just authoritarian countries into democratic countries Wait, we may not see beating of beatings of journalists in democratic countries or killings, but you will see arrests or you will see, you know, prosecutions. Uh, you have legislation in the United uh, Nation, uh, the United um, <laughs> the United Kingdom, um, the the Snoopers Charter, which right. is just you know you, you think about the UK and you think it's a, a fairly liberal country and then you you take a look at that legislation and you just wonder how that could be true and then that takes you back to the United States and and how we prosecute whistleblowers here. Well, and and journalists here. I'm one, I'm I a member of a group called the First Jailbirds Club. I mean, there's 12 of us in the country. Uh all of us went to jail mm -hmm. for the First Amendment. Some of us spent uh, a good deal of time. Um, I know one of one of us was a videographer and spent like uh, 200 days in behind bars. I I spent about 20 myself. It's um, it's frightening. I don't think people understand how it happens or why it happens in the United States. And it 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 seems like we're more willing to forgive our own government for doing it because we're a democracy. So 
the reporter must have done something wrong. Yeah, that's actually the attitude that I've come across from at least some people in government. You know, when I tell them the number of journalists who were arrested in 2017, thanks to the the U.S. Press Freedom Tracker, which RSF is a part, um, I think it's something like 34 arrests of journalists in 2017 alone. And I shared that with a customs officer on my way back into the United States from Canada once. And his reaction was, oh, well, you know, they must have been doing something wrong. Well, I'll tell you, about two years ago at the uh, National Press Club, I got our group together for the first time to speak. And the 12, the 12 of us together had never been together in the same room before. So there's Judy Miller, myself, and um, a bunch of other people, and and. <laughs> Judy just reminded she you know she's a very outspoken woman mm-hmm. and so we're sitting there and we're all talking and the thing that occurred to me as we were speaking is that while we had never spoken before all of us were telling pretty much the same story the prosecution the government said hey we believe in the first amendment but not in your case mm-hmm. you did something wrong and and in fact you know we maintain we didn't we were just trying to gather and disseminate information and used confidential sources to do it right and we're tossed in jail for it yeah and it's the repeated defense when you know journalists covering the north dakota access pipeline protests were also arrested and charged right. yes. with trespassing and, you know, it wasn't just Amy Goodman of Democracy Now! It was a lot of local, independent, Native American reporters covering that topic. Um, the way they were treated when they were detained, uh, the way they were treated on trial. It's its like the, the fact that their reporters didn't really even factor in. They were treated like any other kind of protester, which is not to say that protesters deserve to be arrested either. I mean, right. what shocked me most when I was talking to this person in customs was that they didn't really understand the right to protest either, the right to protest and the right to cover it as a reporter. And that's just so fundamental in our notion of democracy here in the United States that I think the more we can share the information about, you know, the data that we have at our organization about what the situation is for press freedom and how it compares to the rest of the world, the more eye-opening it's going to be. And this year when we published our index and we downgraded the U.S., you know, to 45th place, I really got the sense that people understood why, because they're seeing what's happening (laughs) in front of them. And if that can serve as a wake-up call to some people who have the power to make positive change, then that's good. I mean, we need to move forward. We need to take, you know, some action. Does your group recommend changes? Well, we have always kind of recommended certain things uh, in the United States, like, for example, a federal shield law that would protect journalists at the federal level um, from having to reveal their sources and not make them go to jail. When we talk about uh, whistle... Let's talk about that for a second. There is there is a bill before uh, Congress uh, written by Jamie Raskin, co-sponsored by, of all people, Jim Jordan. Mm-hmm. And it's a bipartisan effort. It's received one hearing. It is a national shield law. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk to Jamie a little bit about that. But tell me what a shield law is and why it is important. Well, a shield law is uh, legislation designed to keep a reporter from facing contempt charges for failing to reveal uh, the identity of their source because it's seen as compromising the very nature of the work that they do as a reporter. And there are all sorts of protections, either federal or uh, either shield laws at the state level or case law that protects this, that gives this privilege to reporters 
in state courts. I but think when in it comes forty nine, yeah, overwhelmingly. Uh, right. But when it comes to national security information, as we're seeing, many things are now more and more related to national security, whether or not they are legitimately right. or not. And so, therefore, a federal shield law is really needed. And you have a you know kind of uh, unresolved issue after the um, James Risen Jeffrey Sterling case of whether or not a reporter can actually be compelled to provide their source in the United States and was never taken to the Supreme Court and there's a division in the mine circuits. Went the, it, mine went to the Supreme Court, but yeah, there there have been cases before the Supreme Court, but there's no definitive case that has been decided in the Supreme there's Court. There's no resolution yeah, of the issue. There's no resolution of the issue. And the, the argument is the First Amendment should provide the resolution of the issue, but unfortunately it has not. Mm-hmm. It has not prevented the jailing of reporters and prevented us being prosecuted and prevented us from uh, being harassed by right. members of the government. What else would you recommend as a... So when uh, when we advocate for whistleblower protection in the United States, we also talk about, you know, as I mentioned, the the way that whistleblowers are prosecuted. They don't have a public interest defense. They're being prosecuted under very disproportionate legislation for what they're being accused of doing. And there's other ways that they can be, they can face some kind of consequence for, you know, violating their professional code of revealing information. But do they do they need to face, you know, maximum penalty could be the death penalty? Do they need to well, in the argument, face so many years in prison? And they should be able to defend themselves based on the public interest of what they've shared. That's true. The argument against that, of course, is they're, they're using the Julian Assange, uh, you know, WikiLeaks, and of course, Snowden as examples of these people were bad actors and hurt the country, and so therefore they should be prosecuted in such a manner. How do you respond to that? I mean, Snowden has always kind of said, if you, I'll come back to the United States, if, you know, you will use a different way of prosecuting me than the Espionage Act, and has admitted, you know, the acts that he's committed. And I don't think anybody can dispute the the value of what information that he shared. And having a public interest, you know, uh, defense available to someone in that position, I think, is really important. Um, WikiLeaks. WikiLeaks, you know, the information that was shared through the cables that filtered through the media, some of it was very useful. Whether or not you have personal thoughts about Julian Assange, uh, yeah, that's I another matter. Pro- I never pronounced his name, or you have to forgive but me. It's dangerous to go down a slippery slope with prosecuting WikiLeaks you know, for sharing information that may be of public interest. How do you make people understand that? Because people just, when I bring that up, it's like, well, they did espionage, let them be prosecuted for espionage. And I can't really seem to make people understand that it's not espionage. How do you, how do you do that? I mean, I think it's about reframing the issue and groups like RSF and other groups that defend whistleblowers were really, it's about, you know, trying to let them tell their story and trying to highlight the importance of the information that they shared. Uh, and if you look throughout history at different whistleblowers, uh, Daniel Ellsberg, I mean, yeah, Daniel Ellsberg, <laughs> very important information at the time they were vilified too. And I think it's, it's really important to remind the American people about that because the information gained from those past whistleblowers is, well, you're preaching to the choir. I'm just making the other case, the right. other side, trying to be as fair as possible. And But my, my question at the end of the day is how in the name of heavens in a country that touts itself as being a proponent for free speech, 
has come to where we are now. It, it just boggles my mind. I mean, free speech, the First Amendment, was founded at a time when the when it was very partisan. Mm-hmm. Each party had its own, you know, press, had its own newspaper, and they said the worst things about each other. You know, Andrew Jackson was a drunk, and, you know, he was this, and they were that. And, and still, our founding fathers said, you know, you cannot stop free speech, because if you do, you're going to have a problem with your government being a totalitarian government. Mm-hmm. And, and so... And what happened? <laughs> what happened to us? I mean, I think overall the democratic ideals on which this country was founded and many others were founded, um, they just probably seem so remote to those people in power who they just want to hold on to their authority. They want to control the narrative coming out of the White Doesn't House. piss you off? Well, it's very, I mean, it's dangerous. Honestly, yeah. All right. It's dangerous, and we're seeing how dangerous it's becoming in our country. Yeah, more and more, and that should alarm people. Well, I, I mean, I, I get incredibly pissed off at it, and and you're working in a, 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 I mean, Reporters Without Borders. You see how it's going globally, and you got to be frustrated or pissed off at some. Point. I mean, when I see tweets from the president saying that journalists start wars. That makes me very upset because I think about all of the journalists who have died covering wars for us so that we know what's going on. And they're risking their lives to let us know these important stories, to let the international community know these important stories. You know, everything that was happening in Myanmar uh, and everything happening to the Rohingya population, that's through news reports. Yeah. Well, I love how people say there's a, you know, I don't get my news from the mainstream media. Did you see this? This was an unreported story. And I go, well, if it was unreported, how did you know about it? Right. Well, I found out about it on, you know, I I said, well, you got it from wherever you got it from. That was media. Unless you were there Mm -hmm. and saw it firsthand, you're getting it from a media source. Now, whether you want to call it mainstream media or call it, you know, your Uncle Tom or your Uncle Bobby, I don't care. But, you know, I, I always say we don't want any more than, well, I don't want any more rights than the common citizen. I, w- I want my First Amendment rights. I want right. to be able to do my job. And what's incredibly frustrating for me, you know, there are places in this world where I've gone. I was in, you know, France at the at the um, uh, refugee camp called, uh, uh, what did they call the Dagon thing? It was on the side of the road, uh, the jungle. And, yeah, in Calais, right? Yeah, in Calais before they closed it. And I remember the only ones I really feared from weren't the people there, which is the story that was sold to me mm-hmm. when I got there. You got to be careful. These people are going to hurt you. The only ones that were armed that I saw that I worried about were the soldiers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm not saying anything against them, but the people in command, the people in power mm-hmm. had the guns. Right. And they were pointed at us. The people that were inside were basically poor people fleeing the terrorism that they were accused of participating in. Right. And you have you have impediments here in the United States, too, to cover what's going on with our immigration situation. There are many journalists who come into the United States from Mexico or Cuba who face death in their country. And it's, you know, we've documented how dangerous these countries can be for these journalists. And they come into the United States and they seek asylum. And they get detained. And there's one down in Texas right now. 
Yeah, we have a Cuban journalist named Serafin Moran Santiago who's being detained while seeking asylum. Uh, we requested, you know, parole for him, tried to get him out, you know, while he waits for his asylum case. And it, it's almost the same story, you know. They're they're worried that there'll be a flight risk. They're worried they won't show up to their hearing. And we and we vouch for them and we talk about their work as a reporter. And it just it doesn't kind of register with them. And some cases we've worked on in the past from Mexico. They found the conditions of detention so demoralizing and dangerous to their health that they opted to go back to their home country and live in hiding. I can tell you for a fact, having been down there, that uh, the conditions on both sides of the border as far as detention are deplorable. Absolutely. And it's become worse here. Yes. And I don't think we much care. Well, there seems to be a lot of people who care about children being separated at the from their parents at the border, I and they know should. About that. I wouldn't know should. about that. I, I never said anything about that in my entire life. Yes, I. <laughs> <laughs> but I think what's important to highlight is, you know, these people who are facing real threats, they shouldn't be treated like they've done anything wrong, right. uh, and that's really including reporters, including reporters. Yeah. So, so tell us a little bit, RSF, why is it rsf.org? So RSF stands for our French name, which is Reporters Sans Frontières. Uh, we were founded in... Je suis enchanté. <laughs> Very we, good. We were founded in 1985 in France, and we still have our international secretariat in Paris, but we also have uh, 13 offices around the world, two here in the United States, here, right here in Washington, D.C., and one in San Francisco that we just opened. Um, and we have a local network of journalists uh, in about 130 countries. So they're reporting on-the-ground press freedom violations to us. And we use that information to get journalists out of jail, to advocate for investigation into journalists' murders. But we also push very high levels. We have um, consultative status at the United Nations and UNESCO. So we do a lot of work in those forums as how well. How do you all get your funding? So we have three parts to our funding. Uh, one is public from, um, you know, European Union, some Swedish government. Uh, private, we have um, foundations, individual donors. And then we have our third part, which is a photo album. We publish three times a year. It's featuring the work of famous photojournalists that either they donate to us or their families donate to us. We pay for the printing and advertising, and then we sell them all over newsstands across France. We also do have some copies here in the United States. Make sure you leave with one today. But I, I will. It's a I great will. Uh, source of awareness raising uh, for RSF because we do put some articles in there about the work that we do worldwide. You said uh, some from the European Union donate. Uh, does the U.S. government provide any funding? At the moment, no. Uh, we have not. Shock. <laughs> but, you know, it's better to actually really work with um, foundations who support the work that we do and Absolutely. are not restricted by, you know, budget concerns and also don't, you know, feed into the narrative of uh, maybe Russia thinks that reporters without borders are actually spies for the U.S. government, which is obviously false. Do you get that? I don't personally because I don't cover Russia, but I think that that's definitely something that they probably suspect of us. Given Shock. Their <laughs> paranoia. <laughs> Nothing. Well, as we close and as we end, what would you, where do you see us 20 years from now? Gosh, that's so far off. Um, I hope by then things will have gotten as worse as they can get, as bad as they can get, and then they'll begin to get better. <laughs> Gosh, I have more hope than that. <laughs> I hope 20 years from now, I'm still here, but I hope, I hope 20 years Same. from now, we're sitting here and we're looking at a lot more uh, of this 
map of yours and a lot more whites and yellows and far fewer reds and blacks. And if you take a look at the map, I'm talking about good situations and satisfactory situations versus difficult and very serious situations for reporters across the world. Unfortunately, the trend isn't the opposite direction. I know, but let's change that trend. (laughs) Yeah, let's work together to change that trend. I'm all for that. I got to tell you that's, uh, you know, they always say don't shoot the messenger. And today they've they've taken the don't out of it and it's just shoot Shoot the the messenger. messenger. And that's the the scary part of it. I I honestly think that um, even my neighbors, people that I know, have you know, and, and have known me for years, look at me now and go, oh, "I'm fake news media, enemy of the people." And I coached your kid in football. <laughs> what are you talking about? Your kids came over to my house to play. You're you know, they there's a disconnect between real people and their rhetoric. Yeah, and I'll, I think there's also a disconnect of. Words matter. Absolutely. Words matter. And no one knows that better than reporters, right? Because they're using words every day to report the news every day. And the words that people use to attack the press, they do matter, even if they're just words. Somebody takes them seriously. Yes. And I'll, you know, that's, I had after, right after uh, Donald Trump got elected, there was a, um, a, excuse me, protest in Rockville at a high school. And my newspaper uh, that I run covered it. Mm -hmm. And I got a phone call from someone telling me that because I was anti-president, and I said, look, we just covered the rally. You know, I I didn't make any editorial statement one way or another. Right. He said, well, we're going to deport you. And I said, well, I I don't want to move back to Kentucky. I'm quite happy here. And he said, no, um, I know what your last name is. What kind of name is that? And I go, it's it's a last name. What kind of last name? Well, it's the one that comes after my first name. And he said, well, then you know what? We're going to, you'll be one of those that we kill. You'll be the first one. I go, you're not going to kill me. And he goes, yeah, we are. I go, no, you're not. I said, right now you're sitting in your mother's basement. You're fat. You're overweight. You haven't had a job in five years. You wonder why girls don't like you and you're eating a lot of Cheetos and watching kitty porn. And he goes, you're mean. I go, I'm mean. You, you call me up and threaten to kill me and I'm mean. I, I got two words for you. <laughs> and so I hung up on him. And I feel like. After that, I got a real good feeling that some people like to listen to those words and pretend like they're going to act on them mm-hmm. and not. And those people I don't worry about. They're the ones that are spouting rhetoric. But in but they, con- they have the ability to be influenced positively, you think? I think they do. I think that's our I think our that there's hope. a good number of people, too. Yeah, I think that we can influence them. But the, the systemic effort to destroy reporters and journalism from those in power that you speak to mm-hmm. is the real concern, not the the disenfranchised. I need you know some attention to me, and I want I, you know right. I'm mad in the moment type of person. It's the systemic effort by governments. Absolutely, and that's you have I, you're one of the heroes in the reporting world for doing what you do. And well, I thank you, and I thank you for coming on today, and I thank you for talking with us, and for me taking up so much of your time. Oh. I appreciate you having me on. It's really an honor. Well, thanks. Well, and if, if you want, it's again rsf.org. Yes. And clue in and take a look and buy gum help. Thanks for being here again today. My name is Brian Karam, and this is Just Ask the Question, so keep asking questions. See you next time. <laughs>